Let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. I learned during the fellowship time before church that some of you are going through in your family worship time or personal devotional time the Gospel of Matthew. I am myself in my personal devotions, and I come across chapter 20 this week, and uh, this jumped out at me, what I want to share with you today regarding our lives as Christians, and uh, this is the Sunday where we take time and try to understand how our theology applies in our lives, and I want to treat Matthew chapter 20 under a message entitled Kingdom Contentment. Kingdom contentment. And so, of course, we're going to be dealing with certain aspects of biblical contentment this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. As part of my introduction, I want to share with you um, something that's relevant to us as Christians in the 20th century by way of a documentary, which I watched. I was telling Jessica this come to my mind as I was preparing this lesson. And I can't remember exactly when I watched this. But it was, I specifically remember I was sick. I was laid up in bed for like a week. And so I watched a four-part documentary. So it's like three and a half, four hours. And the documentary was called The Center of Self. The Center of Self. It was first released by the BBC in 2002. And the film author, Adam Curtis, What he did in this documentary was he sought to historically outline the influence of secular psychologist Sigmund Freud through his nephew, who many know little about, Edward Benet, who utilized the psychological uh, conclusions of his uncle to, as a person in the position of public relations for the government, get group thinking on board in America to go along with the First World War. Bernay, Edward Bernay, this was Sigmund Freud's nephew, he successfully harnessed the bondage of fallen humanity, what we know as the Christian church as natural depravity, because you know this is what Sigmund Freud and other secular psychologists only do. They put labels on what we know the Bible calls sin. Well, Bernay, his nephew, he harnessed the bondage of fallen humanity, our remaining corruptions of the flesh after the fall, and its susceptibility to be only concerned with self-gratification. And he could be truly credited, brothers and sisters, as the great patriarch of modern-day marketing and advertising. What Bernay did was after he successfully saw how that he could promote group thinking in a society for military campaigns, as a good, greedy guy, he said, I need to take these things I've learned to the major corporations of America. Procter & Gamble, the major department stores, car manufacturers, And so this is around the 40s, 50s, and 60s time period when marketing really started to come onto the scene. Edward Bernay was the patriarch of how major corporations began to pitch to you that what you have is not good enough, how you look is not good enough, 
and the restrictions of God's moral law upon you, they are shackles to your happiness and freedom. Edward Bernay, do some research. About the documentary, I would say that you do, if parents, if you're interested in watching this, uh, you need to go through it before your children do. Uh, there is a certain level of maturity and appropriateness that has to accompany watching it. And while in my introduction, I'm not seeking to give a total review of the documentary, I just want to give you a couple operating headings that it had so that you'll see the relevancy of it as we get into Matthew 20. Part one of the documentary outlines how that, according to Brene and his uncle, humans are nothing more but evolved happy machines. All they really care about is what will satisfy their innate instincts. And to a certain degree, this is true. Fallen humanity outside of Christ, that's what they're doing. This is what we just read in Ephraim. That's what they were doing. Following what they wanted. Whatever brought them immediate satisfaction and pleasure. Part two was an interesting aspect of how Brene worked with the government to try to engineer consent in the early part of the 20th century to restrain moral evils. I'm 45 years old in the the time in the era of America and in the West that my grandfather and my great-grandfather were raised in was much different than what I'm, I was raised in and what our children were raised in. I mean, there actually used to be propaganda that was funded by our government that would say sodomy was wrong. There used to be health advisory warning videos you know, to children, don't talk to strangers and, you know, stuff like that about how homosexuality is real and it's a danger. So they wanted to work with some of these aspects of the psychology of Freud through his nephew Bernard to try to keep America, you could say, wholesome or somewhat strong and strengthened. And so part two outlined that relationship that Bernay had. Now what's interesting is in part three, very quickly, under the heading, A Policeman Inside Our Head That Must Be Destroyed. You hear that? You know who that is. That's your conscience. Part three outlined how in the United States, Bernay with corporations saw as sin in the 50s and 60s began to be exhibited in the lives of the young people of just a throwing off of the social engineering of their grandfather, their grandparents in the 40s and 50s. They wanted to throw that off and be liberated and just have individuality. Well, the corporation saw that, oh, wait a minute. We could use the same tactics to give them what they want. And now we need to work through our marketing and through our uh, campaigns of advertising to destroy the policemen that's in their heads and help them to see that, no, you're not going to be happy until you get what you want. And that's been the trajectory we've been on ever since, since the 50s and 60s. And what's interesting is in part four, and I, I promise I'll, I'll stop talking about the documentary, but part four, under the heading, Eight People Sipping Wine in Kettering, that's a geographical location, uh, it, it talks about how in the 1990s, how the Democratic Party wanted to reclaim desperately the White House. And so who did they turn to? They turned to a descendant of Sigmund Freud. His, if I'm correct here in my notes, it was his great-grandson. It was. It was his great-grandson called Matthew Freud. They enlisted his assistance in their public relations with the determined reliance on focus groups. 
The party recalibrated all of their campaign and advertising efforts to fulfill the innermost desires of the American people. And you know who they got in office 1990s, don't you? Bill Clinton. Now, I cover all of this, beloved, solely for this point. Because all of us here this morning, we have been, in some degree or another, we've been affected by this worldly effort, which you could trace back in a historical sense to Edward Bernay, to manipulate our conscience, which we learned last week, was free through the gospel to think clearly, to think biblically, to love that which the Lord loves. We've been affected in some way by this manipulation effort upon our, crop, our conscience into group thinking, which largely thrives upon discontentment. The different group camps in our culture today, they thrive upon discontentment. This group... It's not fair how we're being treated. This group, it's not fair you don't accept our beliefs. This group, so forth and so on. So it thrives on discontentment. An effort to manipulate your remaining sinful flesh, which as the old hymn says, is prone to wonder, is designed to rob you from kingdom contentment. What do I mean by kingdom contentment? Well, it's that contentment that enabled the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.11 to say, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, whatsoever state, therewith to be content. And so now we come to Matthew chapter 20. Because Matthew chapter 20, I saw, it holds two areas that often highlight discontentment in our lives. We'll see this in Matthew 20. One area that highlights discontentment in our lives can sometimes come forward in perceived unfairness. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 16 with the account of the hired laborers. And then another one I believe that Matthew 20 holds forth is the discontentment that's associated with a desire for recognition or a prideful desire of status amongst our equals. And that comes through in the account of the sons of Zebedee. So let us look together at verses 1 through 16, the account of the labors, to see how discontentment can come through through perceived unfairness. Here the Lord Jesus is teaching a parable. And he says in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers, there's an agreement made for a penny a day. He sent them into his vineyard. So they've been hired. They've agreed to be hired. They're hired and they're working. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour. The day is going on and maybe there's, he's just saying there's not great production being done and he has other plans for his vineyard. Well, we don't know the details, but he sees he needs more laborers. And so in verse 3, he, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. This is an idiom describing that they were looking for work. And he said to them, go also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour. The day is almost over with now. And he's saying, you know what? We need to a little bit more labors to get this wrapped up for the day. And so he did likewise. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle, wanting work. And he said unto them, Why stand ye here all day idle? They say unto him, Because no man has hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. Now this phrase, whatever is right, 
was a way of saying whatever what is fair for a day's wage is what you'll receive. And they agree and they go to work. So when even was come, the day's coming to an end, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire. In other words, what we have already agreed upon that they would work for and what they would be paid and we need to pay up. Beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, Toward the end of the day, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed, here's the perceived unfairness, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house. Verse 12, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. And thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? In other words, we had an agreement. I have not done anything wrong to you. You have a perceived unfairness in your own mind. Verse 14, Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. It is not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own. Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few are chosen. Notice in verses 10 and 12, the fruit of discontentment. Although these labors agreed on their payment beforehand, they demonstrate a perceived unfairness And thus it bred within them discontentment with what they already agreed to. And then they very quickly forgot their former position. Their former position was what? Wanting work. Their former position was setting idle in the marketplace, wishing that they could have some work, uh, Levi, to earn us an honest day's living so that they could provide for their family. And here they've been blessed with that. Here they've been given that. And when it comes time to receive what they've agreed to, now that's not enough. You see here very quickly how that the uh, discontentment bred in them unthankfulness. And oh, how quickly they forgot the undeserved kindness that the vineyard owner showed upon them. Discontentment can very quickly minimize our previous position of what we desire to have and very quickly do what? Minimize our perception of how thankful we ought to be for what we've been given. Notice in verses 13 and 14 how the vineyard owner exposes the discontentment. It's an interesting aspect. Oftentimes discontentment can lead us to take great offense from others, the vineyard owner, who has already demonstrated that he cares for these men's welfare. He needs a job done. He's going to go to them. They need some work done. Hey, Come and, come and work for me. Now, I'm, of course, speculating here a little bit, but uh, from what we could gather from historical data, uh, I'm sure he was providing water to them as they were working. Uh, he doesn't want them to have a heat stroke out there in his vineyard. You see what I mean? And so this man has shown kindness to them, and the discontentment that bred in their hearts now is causing them to look at a man who's actually been helping them as someone what? Who is doing them wrong. Now, once he was a friend, 
Once he was someone who helped, but now he's an unfair enemy in some way, you see. And this is what discontentment breeds, doesn't it? This is what is indeed taking place. And we know so because of the idiom that he uses in verse 15. Look at the look what he says to them. He says, uh, friends, is it not lawful for me to do with my own what I will? If I want to give the men who only worked a couple hours the same I gave you, isn't that my business? I've given you what you've agreed to work for and what I agreed to pay you. And listen to what he says. He, he, he wants them to see, is your discontentment really rooted in a perceived unfairness? Or indeed, is it rooted in your own covetous greed of what they're getting and you're not getting? And we know this because of the idiot he uses in verse 15. He says, is thine eye evil? What's he mean by that, Nolan? Do they got red contact lenses in their eyes and they look kind of, you know, evil? You guys have seen some of those things now. Have you ever seen someone that wears those kind of contact lenses where it blacks out their whole eye? It's like, that's, that's creepy. Why would you do that, you know? But, uh, you know, what, what's this evil eye thing he's talking about? Well, listen how this idiom is used. Now, what do we mean when we say biblical idiom? We're talking about a phrase that's used that means something else. Uh, for instance, I have here some examples of those. Uh, what about, you ever hear the idiom of the blind leading the blind? Right? Uh, hey, so-and-so, it'd be, like, uh, it'd be like me trying to tell. Well, no, not Brother Cox. That's a bad illustration. I always, you're, you're to my right, and I always use you for illustrations, don't I? Uh, it'd be like, you know, me, uh, Brother Co- uh, Marsh was showing me a video. Uh, he was working this week, and he was repairing a main water break in a company that, and you know he was it was pretty neat how it was like wow I can't believe that happened and you had to fix that um, but it'd be like me trying to teach him who's never done it for the first time he knew what he was doing he's an expert he goes there he's a professional trained gets down there he knows how to shut the water pressure off first so it's say he starts taking it apart and he fixes it but what if it was his very first day and I'm the owner of the company that he's coming to repair, and he looks at me and he says, so what do you think we ought to do? And I start instructing him, well, that's the blind leading the blind, isn't it? Well, that's an idiom. It stands for, I don't know what I'm doing, he doesn't know what he's doing, so we're going to make a mess of this thing, right? And that, of course, that idiom, a lot of these idioms in our English language come from Scripture. Uh, The blind leading the blind, you know, comes from Matthew 15, verses 13 and 14. And then what about the skin of the teeth? Uh, You know, I, I, I barely passed that test exam by the skin of my teeth. You know, we get that from Job 19.20. Well, here, this uh, vineyard owner, he's using this idiom, evil eye. And it's throughout the Bible. And we know that it's teaching us that there was a selfishness, a greediness to this discontentment that they were exhibiting. In Matthew 6.23, the Bible says, But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. That doesn't really focus on greediness. But it certainly does when you hear how it's used in Proverbs 23. Listen. Labor not to be rich, beginning with verse 4 in Proverbs 23. Cease not from thine own wisdom. You know, meaning don't, you don't labor in order just to acquire more things, is what the Proverbs teaching. Verse 5 in Proverbs 23. Will thy set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagles, eagles toward the heaven. You, if you're working just to accumulate riches, and that's where your treasure is, you'll see very quick that can fly wings and, and go away. 
I, I read an account this week of how a man, if I said his name, you all would know him. He was, uh, he was made a, a, a millionaire, multi-dollar millionaire in Silicon Valley during the 80s, during the big IT boom and the internet boom and everything. He created one of the most renowned security antiviruses software. And he got to a point where he sold the company for $100 million. And within a span of 10 years, the guy was in jail. It all flew away. Well, back to our point here in verse number six about this idiom, an evil eye, that these laborers were perhaps guilty of. And the vineyard owner saying to them, are you really, are you sure you're not saying this because you have an evil eye and I am good? Eat thou, verse six says in Proverbs 23, eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. In that context, it's talking about don't eat bread with the man who's looking at your bread wanting to take your bread. Be careful. He's a greedy man. He will pretend to be your friend, but really he has self-motives to take from you what is uh, not his. So we, free, we see from how this idiom is used that here in verse 15, the master who hired these men, who now have grown discontent with what they previously agreed to, this exposes their sinful attitude as being nothing less than rooted in unthankfulness. At best, it's rooted in thankfulness. At worst, it's implying that he, a man who provided work, gave them work, paid them, shook their hand, agreed to something, a covenant with them, and gave them what they wanted, it's implying that he's a sinner. It's calling into question his integrity at worst. Now, to be clear, while most, I'm sorry, not most, while we must allow the overall context for those who kept reading through the parable, as we read it, we must allow the context of the parable and the summary statement that's found in verse 16 to properly be interpreted as Jesus here in this parable is teaching that there is no saint more valuable in his economy than another saint. That is the intent of the parable. That's the overall theme. If I was preaching a sermon on this, this is how I would preach it, right? But we nonetheless also see here a valuable and a basic pattern and principle of contentment, don't we? When we have agreed to something and we have been given something and and, and everyone's kept their position of the covenant, let us be careful when we look at what someone else has given that we don't grow discontent of what they have. Valuable principle of perceived unfairness, how it can be quenched, how it can be thwarted, how it can be prevented from even starting. The servants were wrong to envy what the later servants were given. They were wrong in viewing their employer as an unfair or an unjust man, weren't they? Rather than murmuring in verse 11, they ought to have been thankful that God, through the vineyard owner, had granted them what they desired for that day. Well, some would be, would be wrong to walk away from verses 1 through 16 and everything I just said and say, well, Pastor Doug, are you saying that in the local context that I'm in where I'm hired, I should uh, never excel to be paid more? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. In fact, I tell a lot of young guys, and we all know this to be true, dads in here and Avis in the work, uh, work environment, it's real easy to excel today and get paid more. Just show up on time, be honest and loyal, and be able to connect dots and make things happen and use some basic comprehension skills and have good you know, character traits 
And believe me, your employer, he's going to see very quickly, hey, I want you to stick around for a long time. I'm not going to let you leave, right? Well, let us consider from the text of chapter 20 another area that often, if not mortified, can fester within our hearts and lead us to a great deal of discontentment. And I said our hearts. I know that I'm talking to a Christian community because what we see in the following verses is dealing with the apostles. It's dealing with Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. And this is the area of discontentment that can breed up from a desire for recognition or status rather than for the state that someone is in in this season of their life to be content, to be content. And this is through the account of the mother of Zebedee's sons that begins in verse 17. Let's look at it together. Verse 17. Jesus, we don't know how much time's passed here, but Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples apart in the way, and He said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and to the scribes, and they shall condemn Him to death, and shall deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock, and to scourge, and to crucify Him, and the third day He shall rise again. This is an interesting aspect here in verse 17-19, because you could imagine these disciples who are still in the process, for those who are with us during our pulpit, uh, sermon series through the Gospel of John, uh, and anytime we're dealing with areas of the New Testament, they were still in the process of figuring out what this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God that Jesus kept talking about. And when he throws zingers out here like this, they're probably thinking, How, what idiom is, does this mean? You know? But we come to verse 20. So they're around him, and he's revealed to them an aspect of what he's going to do in his earthly ministry. And verse 20, 20 comes. They came to him, then came to him, sorry, the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desire a certain thing of him. Well, what does she desire? We see that she loves Jesus. She worships him. So this is definitely a converted woman, right? She said, and he said unto her, he asked her question, what will thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these, my two sons, may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now here in the Greek, the word, he's obviously using that word baptizo, that's meaning to just plunge into you know, are you really prepared? He's not talking about water here. He, he's talking about the trials and the affliction that he is literally going to feel like are being poured upon him. They shall say, or they say unto him, "We are able." So they respond. They understand what he's saying. Oh yeah, yeah, we, we're going to, we're, we're willing to do that too. Verse twenty-three, and he saith unto them, now that they've affirmed, we're willing to go through whatever you're going to go through, Jesus. Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is repaired of my Father. And when the ten heard it, they knew what was being applied here. They were moved with indignation against 
the two brethren. So what was at the heart there? They were trying to elevate themselves in recognition and status over the other ten, weren't they? And they even admitted, Natalie, that Jesus, we're willing to do even whatever it takes. Whatever, whatever a baptism is, of affliction is going to be sent upon you, we're willing to go through that as well, just so long as we could be elevated at the seats of honor on your right hand and your left hand. Well, first of all, who in the world is this person with this cool name named Zebedee? I mean, last week, you know, we had, we had a really cool name in the Bible as we were going through our, our, our lesson, uh, Tychicus. Now we got Zebedee. Well, although the name Zebedee is mentioned often in the New Testament, there's very little we know about the man. His name's mentioned almost entirely in connection with his two sons here. Naomi, in your little Bible we were looking through before church, they had the pictures of the apostle. James and John, these are considered the sons of thunder, Right? Well, these are Zebedee's sons. We do know that Zebedee was a fisherman by trade. And when Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he called James and John, Zebedee's sons, who are being referenced here today, who were, quote, in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their tents. And that comes from Matthew 4.21. And we know from that account that James and John immediately left their their father to follow Jesus. And so we can rightfully deduce from that that Zebedee knew of the ministry of Jesus. He had heard about the ministry of Jesus. And to a certain degree, knowing from Jewish culture, he totally approved of his sons who were fishermen to become disciples of a rabbi, which would have definitely helped them in the community and helped them in status. So there could have been, we can rightfully say, perhaps an issue within their family culture that being fishermen just wasn't enough. Yes, son, hurry up. Uh, go, go, go with him. He's a rabbi. Look, he's a teacher. He's a great teacher. That's to help you in, in society to become more than just a fisherman. That is speculation. I present that. But building up to what we see the mother does, it's a logical deduction. Well, Zebedee, here we're learning about his wife, was married to Salome. Beautiful name, isn't it? I haven't heard that name in a long time, Salome. Salome was his wife. She's in the New Testament in Matthew 27, 56 and Mark 15, 40 and was one of the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee according to Luke 23, 49. Due to Salome's presence at the crucifixion and at the tomb of Jesus three days later, it is very probable that Zebedee, Salome, their sons, James and John in their immediate family context were all believers. But that didn't mean they didn't have remaining corruptions that needed to be sanctified and the Lord Jesus exposed, which is what He's doing here today. Now we see today in verse 20 that this narrative of Salome and her interaction with Jesus portrays her as the one that comes forth and requests these positions of honor for her sons. However, the same account that's recorded in Mark 10.35, it says that James and John themselves are the ones that approach Jesus and ask the question if they could be sitting, sitted and fitted at the right hand and left hand in His kingdom. So is there a contradiction in the Bible? No, there's not. There's not. What is taking place here, obviously, is discussion in this family of how amongst these disciples, James and John ought to be in some way elevated or recognized as more important. In the account of Mark, James and John initiated the conversation. And now here 
in the same context. We don't know how much the times went by. Perhaps the days went by. Perhaps a couple hours. But now, who went first, you wonder? Did James and John go first and then come back to the family tent? You know, I'm, I'm kind of just painting a picture here and talking about, yeah, we tried, you know. Uh, Salome asked him, hey, boys, did you, did you take my advice? Did you, did you cook him the, good, the meal that he likes? Did you, you, know, did, you in, did you lead into the question that way? We, we don't know that. But apparently what's taking place here now, mom's going to give a crack at it, right? It's not a, it's not a contradiction. But it's most likely, as I said, that all three of them had discussed this among themselves, which I believe as a family there was a culture allowed to develop of discontentment. It was festered. It was fostered. It was fed a little bit. You know, a comment here, a comment there. Um, the mother saying perhaps to James, Oh, James, when the apostles pray and we have our prayer gathering, your prayers, I've noticed, are just... So much more powerful than Peter's. You say, oh, thanks, Mom. You know, glory be to God, of course. But it's these little subtle comments that were able to just foster a sense of pride amongst those who Jesus is trying to teach in Matthew chapter 20. We're all equal on the same playing field in the kingdom of God. Right? The last shall be first, and the first will be last. That's what he's trying to press upon them, and he demonstrated in his own life. Obviously, connected with this culture and their family that was seeking recognition, status at the root of its pride, discontentment. There was misunderstanding about the kingdom of Christ, right? There's misunderstanding about an imbalanced proportion of ambition amongst them. And there was an unwillingness to recognize within their own selves a harmful level of discontentment. In this account, we know from verse 21, it appears that in addition to themselves asking, as I said in Mark 10.35, now his mother approaches. Look at verse 21. She says, Jesus, grant unto these my two sons that they may sit, one on the right hand and one on the left, in thy kingdom. Notice his response in verse 22 reveals that their selfish, discontent perception was void of truth. And sometimes, beloved, Our discontentment and what we think we want, especially in the area of recognition and status amongst the brethren, is rooted in things that we we don't even have any experience in or any truth in. And what we think we want, if we finally get it, we'll be like, why in the world did I ever wish for this? And usually that'll happen as you're looking in the mirror and your hair's gray and it's half gone, Right? Jesus said, we know that it was rooted in in ignorance because in verse 22, He said, ye know not what ye ask. Ye know not what you ask. You have no idea of the excruciating, horrible mocking that He just talked about in verses 17 and 19 that I'm going to endure to have a thrice holy God wrath poured upon me as I'm treated as a criminal. They didn't know really what they were asking. Notice that their focus on self, and here's really what come out to me in this reading this, their focus on self, it blinded them to their already valuable status in this close proximity, this close relationship as walking with Christ's sister, one of His disciples, eating with Him, laughing with Him, 
learning from him. Natalie, this is a beautiful relationship of us and our relationship with Christ. How in the world could you ever in the state that you are there in with Christ become discontent with that? And start thinking that this isn't enough. And I've got to have a higher recognition. I've got to have a higher status in the kingdom of God and amongst His saints. Look at verse 23 with me. God the Father had them in the position where He wanted them. And Jesus was trying to get them to see that. He saith unto them, You shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with my baptism. Meaning trials, affliction, persecution, and martyrdom. Um, But... But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine. It is prepared, he says later on in the verse of my Father. Jesus is teaching them that the position of each person in the kingdom was prepared by God the Father. And thus, instead of jockeying for a position, instead of striving for some kind of special status or recognition, John, James, understand the Father has you where He has you and be found faithful there so long He has you there. Be content with that position. It reminded me that point when it come to the surface about an old children's hymn. Uh, some of you may be familiar with it. And it's called, Be Found Faithful. And it goes like this. I'd like to be found faithful in all of the little things. My shoes and socks, my toys and blocks that have been entrusted to me. Then when I grow up, the seeds that I have sown will sprout for all to see that I've been faithful to what was given me. Be faithful, little ones, in the littlest of things. Be faithful when time comes in the biggest of things. But oh, always be found faithful. Amen. This is what James and John were basically being taught by the Lord Jesus. You're in a position where the Father has appointed you. Be faithful there. Be found faithful there. You see, rather than seeking higher status among the disciples, James and John needed to be content for the season that they were in and be found faithful with the position that the Father had entrusted to them. Now there's a very helpful parallel parable, parallel parable, Found in Matthew 25, let's turn our Bibles a little over here, that demonstrates this point wonderfully. Jesus was constantly emphasizing this amongst the disciples because we are prone in the kingdom of Christ to never be content with the recognition and the position and the status that we have as just someone in the church. Another teaching demonstrating this point. Matthew 25, verses 14 and 21. Look at this. For the kingdom of heaven is a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents. You know the story well, I'm sure. To another he gave two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Here's the rich man, right, who's got some means. He's going to go away. According to their several abilities, their position in his servanthood, He gives them what they can handle. Some can handle more. He's got a disposition. He can handle more talents than the next one. And even one who, the the, the, the wise uh, ruler of the house, he understands, you know what, according to his disposition, according to his gifts, he can only handle but one. But oh, I'm sure he's going to be found. I'm trusting just one to him. The narrative goes on then. 
Uh, he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them another five talents. He did some wise investment here. Verse 17, And likewise, he that had received two talents, he also gained another two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants, he cometh and he reckoneth with them. He's calling them to his presence to want to know, what did you do with the money? Uh, did, you, did, you, did you keep it saved? Did you make more money with it? What did you do with it? And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five more talents. His Lord said unto him, Well done. Thou good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Verse 22, he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Now he comes to the last one. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered him in verse 26 and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sow not, and I gather where I have not straw. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money in the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him, which hath ten talents. For unto every one that shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For our purpose to today, it's very clear to see that in that parable, there is the underlining principle of taking the little that we have no matter what it is, position in this context, uh, in the church, whatever area that we're serving in, and be found faithful with that. Dear sister, do not let any church ministry, some internet preacher, some magazine, God forbid you go to some Christian bookstore that has a glossy picture of a Christian mom, you know what I'm saying, in her slimwear, trying to tell you that you're not good enough in the house of God raising and discipling your children. Amen, brothers and sisters? Be found faithful in the little things. Because even in the Christian context and society of the contemporary church, there's many things that want us to be discontent with what we're faithfully doing with the charge that God has given us charge over. Now, back to our text in Matthew. Verse 20. One more last thing I want to point out. Notice, beginning in verse 30, the contrast of the desire between those who don't have Christ and the disciples. The narrative continues on after this interaction with the mother of Zebedee's sons. And behold, two blind men, verse 30 we pick up, were sitting by the wayside. 
these blind men, they, they don't have Christ. They've heard of Christ. They know that He can relieve their blindness. They heard that Jesus passed by and they cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, in a question form, the same question. He asked the mother of the sons of Zebedee, What will ye that I shall do unto you? What do you want? But notice their answer. They say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Notice the contrast to those who were the closest to Christ were the most blindest to what they really needed in Christ. And here you have people without Christ focusing and crying out what they really need and that is to have mercy. In their context, it was to be able to have vision to see. But what is our context today? What, what are we focusing more on that really is not going to help us to be faithful in what we've already been given and the role and the position we have in His kingdom? I think that's the lesson to walk away from today. As brothers and sisters, let us guard our hearts in the area of kingdom discontentment with the contrast to that which is true biblical contentment. Amen? Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Holy Father, we do thank You, Lord, for Your wisdom and in Your ways. How, God, You work all things out in our lives. Lord, You orchestrate in our lives the different events, the different interaction, the different providential circumstances, Lord, that are used by Your hidden, loving, fatherly hand to lead, to guide, to prune, to mature, to grow, and to nurture. And oh Lord, You have us in the position that we right now are in, all of us here. And I pray, oh God, for anyone. Uh, Lord, this was just a text that came to the surface as I was in my devotion this week. And, and I pray, Lord, that, that um, we see it as just a general exhortation for all of us, O oh God. Uh, Lord, to really focus on what are we praying for? What, what does our prayer life look, look like? What's at the forefront of our prayer life? Lord, I, I pray, first of all, for myself, that the front of my prayer life is not that I'm elevated amongst fellow pastors. I, I pray that it's not that I would be elevated amongst even the brethren here that I stand next to and humbly serve every Sunday, Lord, that I'm on the right hand or the left hand of Your throne. Oh God, I pray that all of us at the forefront of our prayers is like these blind men. Oh God, continue to have mercy upon us. Help, I pray, the sisters in this church, Lord, to have mercy upon them in fortifying and insulating, O oh God, the place and the position You have them in in the state of Your kingdom now. The young men and the young women in this church, Lord, have mercy upon them that they would be content in the season of their life and the status and the position where You have them in now. Let them be those faithful servants with one talent that will be found faithful Dear Lord, not one who, who, who in fear or in some misunderstanding of service, Lord, squanders the talent You've given them.
I pray, oh God, for the husbands in this church, the young men in this church. Oh God, that you would give us a contentment of being faithful in the little things. Help us to be the salt and the light in this world in which we live. Going out in Egypt every day, let us be found faithful. Help us, oh God, we pray, to squash all the Edward Bernays lies in our culture that are constantly telling us we don't have enough, we don't look good enough, that our church isn't big enough, that we don't have this and that, and grow within us discontentment. Protect us, O God. Have mercy upon us from these wicked wiles of the devil. Help us to have kingdom contentment. We bless you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.